0: Welcome back everyone to episode number 17 of Fixed. I'm your host Jessica Danielle and with me today I have the one and only Pej the interventionist. Now Pej has interviewed me on a few occasions. I know him personally but am looking forward to this in-depth discussion about his past and his recovery and what he's up to now. He's an interventionist, he owns Sober livings. he's a podcaster, YouTuber, you name it, he does it, and he also just helps because he genuinely cares, so let's dive right in with him. I am so excited and grateful to have Pej on this episode, so everyone, hang tight, here is Pej, the interventionist. So welcome, Pej. I know that um, you and I have gotten to know each other quite a bit over the last few years. However, I feel like you know a lot more about me than I know about you. And you do a lot in the recovery community. And I'm excited to dive back into you and what got you to where you are today. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, Thank you for being here. I really do genuinely appreciate it. But of course. Um, So I want to know like, take me back. How did you get to where you are today? Um, What are you doing today? Was there a moment in time? Like, just take me back to the beginning of your defining moment of where addiction kind of took a hold and then just bring me through it. Walk me through it.
1: I mean, as far as like addiction, hmm, I experimented with, uh, with substances from a very young age, from gasoline to like huffing gasoline, to smoking weed, to Drinking and later, later on in my adolescent period, you know, I got into like the hallucinogens, the acid, the LSD, um, the mushroom, psilocybin, and then on top of that, <laughs> cocaine and even freebasing. Um, and so drugs were part of my, you know, it, part of my makeup and who I was from a very young age. Like my identity was based around drugs from, a, from pretty much an adolescent period of my life. I got into more heavy, heavy, heavy. I mean, those are pretty heavy for a, a teenager, but I got into more heavy, heavy drugs um, throughout my young adulthood. Um, you know, there was a lot of ecstasy. There was a lot of GHB, gamma hydri- hydroxybutyrate. And then on top of that, um, meth, heroin, um, opiates. I got into opium. Uh, I would do all of these things. It was a great escape for me because I had some major, major trauma, both childhood trauma um trauma that occurred for me in my adolescent period. Um so drug just took a hold of me from from a young age all the way into my 30s. Um, and that's what brought me into recovery finally by the age of 35, almost 36, I was a homeless man um that really had nothing going for him anymore. And and that's why I came into this path.
0: And so whenever okay, so yeah you're right. All of the stuff you listed is pretty hardcore. Um, You did list one thing that I don't hear other people say a lot, but I did mess around with it quite a bit um, in my addiction was GHB, which is similar, I would say, to like ecstasy. Most people think of it as just like the date rate being slipped into your drink and unbeknownst to you. But like a lot of people do take it purposefully for the effects, correct?
1: Absolutely. GHB, uh, the best way I can describe it, is it is liquid ecstasy. It's a it's bliss in a bottle. Um, usually when taken, you take a, a bottle cup of it and it just puts you in a state of warmth. And yes. You just like you feel seduced and seductive. Like you, yes. can, you can just you fall in love with the world, you fall in love with the feels, you fall in love with your inner core. You know, you wanna like, just love on people and that's pretty much what ecstasy is too ecstasy lives up to its name it's, it's a you know elated feeling it makes you totally totally sauced in a in a loving blissful way and that's what ghb did for me and i did it for a long time
0: yeah and ghb you know i i really don't hear a lot of people bring that up and a lot of people are like wait what The deep rape drug i'm like no like seriously like in dallas well that's where i saw it mostly was in dallas i was like no it's like." one of the best drugs ever like what are you talking about and it's like not really tested for mostly um a lot of people do it for uh, an abundance of reasons but it is very similar to ecstasy it's interesting that you say that yeah
1: it's because it's used in certain circles and like yes like if you become an opiate opiate addict um that gets into like shooting dope or you know, even smoking heroin, it's not like you're laying around saying, oh, you know what? Let's do some GHP in the mix too. You're already doing something that's pretty much taking you out of the game to where you're getting the high that you need from that circle. But when you're like in the rave scene or the club scene or, you know, sex parties, things like that, GHP yes. goes hand in hand. You don't mix it with alcohol because it, beca- it can become lethal. But definitely like um, if you do GHP with, let's say when you're coming down off of ecstasy, for an entire night and then you start doing some caps of G it's beautiful. It kind of just like reignites the whole evening once again. And you go into another state of, um, of bliss. And, and the thing is, is like, um, if you overshoot the mark, which is not hard to do with that, you can easily overdose <laughs> on GHB. Yes. And you just, you pass out. And usually it's a four hour pass out. And, um, the secret that we used to tell each other is if somebody's passed out, you can't move their body because they're like dead weight put some sugar under their tongue and watch them come to immediately.
0: Yes. Yes. I've actually like, literally, this is gross, but I've like, pe- I've woken up. I remember one time with people like putting sugar under my tongue and I had peed myself on the floor.
1: Yeah. That, ha- that could definitely happen in a G G coma as we would call it or G like state.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. And then also you mentioned tra- uh, childhood trauma, trauma. Mm. It goes hand in hand with addiction and then it's funny because in my early years I didn't really think like if you would have asked me as a counselor when I was like 14 years old have you experienced traumatic situations I would have probably looked them in the eye and been like no but the older that I've gotten the more mature I've become the more that mental health is on everyone's mind um I definitely am recognizing that I was absolutely a victim of trauma, mostly from my biological mother, who was an alcoholic. Um, Explain how that played a part in your journey.
1: Well, you know, being a person that's been in recovery 16 and a half years, I have um, encountered many different people with many different traumas. Uh, Often I will hear people tell me that they've had uh, sexual trauma or they've been raped or they've been uh, molested or they have raped others. And there's a lot of trauma that goes with that type of trauma. And that's what some people view as traumatic. However, um, you know, my trauma consisted of other things. Um, I think everyone's trauma can be different. There's P- PTSD can come in a diff- many different uh, shapes and forms. For me, the trauma started within the house, uh, the turmoil within, uh, you know, the, the, family system the way fathers yeah. when the way mother uh m- she didn't necessarily um raise her voice or raise her hands but um silence s- silence is, is scorn right in, a, in its own way uh dad however was very vocal um very uh abusive uh, both mentally physically verbally um in many different ways so um i mean i'm not gonna lie my dad used to beat the shit out of me sometimes and um And I think that 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 trauma started from there. When you're getting beat at home, um, then you start, it makes you angry and and reactive. And I would take that into school with me. And if somebody double crossed me or somebody acted a certain way, well, if I can't beat my dad up, I'm going to go beat somebody else up. So um, I run into a bully and then the bully beats the shit out of me. Now I feel like I'm getting it at home. You know, I'm getting uh, pulverized at home and now it's happening in school too. Then I'm just a fight or flight. So, my trauma was defining me also. Like it was making me uh, an angry, volatile person that wanted to uh, use my hands to to go after anyone and make, I would make these commitments within myself that no one will ever humiliate me again, like my dad did that time at the store, or like that guy did when he beat me up in front of everyone in the school. So then I just become this really angry guy and my trauma starts, starts to define me and make me want to bully the bully.
0: guys we've entered into a new era a new era of mental health in the past generations mental health was not at the forefront of our society's mind if you were a person struggling with mental health you looked like the odd man out or were just overreacting thankfully as a society we have started to move in the right direction in taking care of our mental health Podcasts, therapy, and social media personalities are shedding more light than ever on anxiety and depression and how detrimental they can be to one's health. One thing we have to remember is we have the power to get through this. It is never too late to take control of your mindset and find positive and productive ways to cope. Thankfully, we now live in an era where people are educated in mental health and we have access to so many outlets to help guide us through our tough times. The Comfort brand was built around mental health, creating products with specific materials and fits to help your body with a state of calm. Together, we can do anything we put our minds to. You guys, I love this brand. I own like every color, every hoodie. I own their tank set, their ribbed tank and boxer brief set. I own it all. I love them. My husband loves them. Everyone I know loves them. I'm giving you a discount code. If you go to comfort, C-O-M-F-R-T.com, you can enter in the discount code Jessica C15 for 15% off your entire purchase. And I will also put the link in the description of this podcast. At the age of 17, Pej goes through a traumatic event that most of us will never experience, hopefully, and it was a game changer in the course of his life.
1: My way to school, I was sober. I wasn't using anything. Um, I had gotten into uh, my car. I had just gotten this car. I had just gotten a driver's license. Um... And I was uh, driving to school. I was had picked up all my friends. I was super excited to pick everybody up and take them to school in my car. Um, And as I was uh, driving, it had rained the night before. There was um, we were just high school kids having high school fun. The music was blaring in the car. The windows were rolled down. Um, We were all laughing, and out of nowhere, this kid on his bicycle um, jumped out right in front of my car on his bike and I couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. And I hit his, his body and his bike and he went over the hood of my car. Um, and he w- went like his whole body was flung over, uh, somebody else's car that I hit in front of me and he went head first into the ground. And so, um, I got out, I see blood all over my face, blood all over my friend's faces. I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is not good. Um, I I go and I thought, did I hit a human body? And uh, everything kind of just went into slow motion. Um, And I went and like saw the kid laying face down with blood gushing out the top of his head. And I thought, oh my God, like I'm in trouble. Like the cops are going to come. Cops did come. Ambulance came. They whisked the kid off to the hospital. The police took me to the police station. They asked me lots of questions. And, you know, that could be seen as one of the most traumatic that is so traumatic. tragic experiences for anybody, let alone oh a kid oh. in high school who already feels like his peers don't like him. And now like the whole school catches wind of that. It's in the newspapers. It's every, um, in, on the tip of everybody's tongue in town. Um, so, this What was, was the outcome? The outcome was that the mom kept him on life support for four days, contemplating if she wanted to keep him alive. And had she done that, he would have been a complete vegetable from extensive brain damage from hitting his head on the asphalt. Um, and so she pulled the plug, he had passed away. And that just became this major, major excuse, uh, ultimate excuse for me to just take it to the next level and use as much as I could. I started using drugs on a much, much heavier basis. And I also started having a lot of police interaction and getting in trouble. And then I found my way into holding cells jail cells and then juvie. And when I was in juvie there were things that happened in juvie that really were traumatic. I was
0: wait, I just got to like I'm like sitting here processing this because I like I know you but I I mean I guess I uh, like from all of the I mean I know you on a personal level but from all of the videos and stuff I don't know how often like you've shared that but I had no idea about that and that is horrifically traumatic.
1: It is. And I think that you—that that is what I carried. Yes. I mean, that that's what I carried around with me. Ugh. You know, like when they say when you're in active addiction, you're basically just carrying this big backpack around and sticking rocks in there and your rocks are your trauma and your rocks are your inadequacies and your rocks are your um, low self-esteem and sadness and
0: and yeah but that's different this is what you experienced is maybe all of that but then like something you i mean even though it was an accident it was still like a life was was taken and, that, was taken.
1: and here, here's the worst uh, part of it you're exactly right it was an accident but when you live in a certain town and people act a certain way i got approached by somebody on the street and they came up to me and said hey aren't you pej aren't you aren't you the guy that killed the guy on that bicycle and i'm like hey bro like why do you got to talk like that like killed the guy like you make it sound like i woke up that morning and wanted to go out and kill somebody why don't you shut your mouth right so then that would get me into trouble because um now i want to fight this guy for talking to me a certain way and making me feel a certain way and so it was just ongoing like yeah it was it was i couldn't imagine you know not just that, but the guy that beat me up in front of the whole school. It was all. It's always seemed like the entire student body caught wind of this guy, that's an absolute loser. At least in my mind, I was because he, because he was driving a car and somebody lost their life, and some people would say you weren't paying attention, or because um, the school bully just decided to make him a target and a punching bag and decided to humiliate me in front of people. So my trauma consisted of a lot of different traumas that a lot of people, some people do share with me. I mean, and some have never experienced such a thing. Yeah, there's people that could have killed people behind the wheel or, or people that have hit someone or something like that. But this person's life was taken.
0: Well, and that makes actually so it's interesting because while we talk about trauma, there's many different forms, like you said, but it it makes that story helps me understand so much more of why, like, I mean, I'm not going to jump forward, but why you're um like so abstinent based in your recovery right like whether like that it just is it makes sense that because yeah you're right like I mean I went through trauma you know in a young age like with my parents and stuff but then I went through a lot of like really like getting kidnapped that kind of crazy trauma you know while being in active drug use but then like, it just, that makes sense to me now, knowing that, why you have the approach that you have, because that is a very, I mean, that I'm sure that's taken years to get over and I'm sure you're still not over it.
1: Well, actually, when I got sober, I did go through a center where they did um uh psychodrama on me where I got to relive that day. Um It was a very powerful moment. They put a kid, a 14 year, a 12 year old kid on the ground with a bed sheet over him to represent the corpse of the kid that I hit and had me walk around a room. I was shedding tears. I was describing everything that happened that day, reliving the day. Everyone that was in the room, it was a family group. Um, All the clients and all their families were there. Tears were shed amongst everyone. My mom was there. My sister was there. My sponsor was there. It was a very powerful moment. But um, in that particular moment, that would have been my turning point where I, because I still wanted to smoke weed and I still wanted to drink a little bit. Um, when I first got sober, but when I went through this process, I then realized, no, Pej, like, what do you think? You think you're just a weed smoker? Like, you don't think that'll take you back. Right. And I, I, I went through this process and, and realized, no, I'm going to be hundred percent sober. I made a commitment that day after walking through this whole thing and putting my hand on top of this kid's, what re- represented his, his corpse. The guy asked me like, what was the kid's name? I said, David, he said, tell David how you feel about him losing his life. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you lost your life. I never t- intended for that to happen. I mean, I'm sitting here feeling this this body and just shaking and pouring tears on top of the sheet. And then he said, now tell him about your life. I'm like, my life? I don't even have a life. I don't know what having I mean, a life is like. Uh, you know, cause I was a homeless guy. Like I didn't know, I never really lived, right? And then he said, so what do you want to do? You want to make a commitment? I said, yeah, I want to make a commitment. I want to help every single addict alcoholic of every age, race, creed and color one day at a time for the rest of my life. And i that's when I like—I I went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, felt like a thousand pounds that had been lifted off of my back. And I made this commitment to help addicts and alcoholics on a daily basis to the best of my ability. That's why everything that you know about me and see about me is based off of that. Had I not done that, who knows if I would have stayed sober. I probably would have still given more power to my reservations and... Uh, resorted to the small stuff and i'm not just a small stuff type of guy i'm a hardcore drug addict like i i take it to the next level had i just been a weed smoker throughout my life i wouldn't have needed to go to rehab and all this stuff right i wouldn't right. Needed, but i got into heavy stuff heavy heavy stuff
0: yeah and so that moment wow so okay what's your relationship like i know you mentioned in that moment your mom and sister were there What's your relationship like today with your family?
1: My relationship with my mom is excellent. My relationship with my sister is good. It's improving. My sister is now in recovery, I think. Um, I don't ask too much. She's had her own personal struggles. I love her. I let her be her. Um, Yeah. We are working on it. But mom is great. Mom and I have a dynamic that's like no other. Um, I love that. We help a lot of people. She helps a lot of people whose loved ones are struggling. I help a lot of people uh, who are the loved ones. I have homes. I have um, structured sober livings, men's house, women's house, um, all walks of life. People from all walks of life come there. They have struggled with alcoholism, drug addiction, mental health. So, um, And some of their families and I, have you know we do a a zoom meeting where my mom actually interacts and she's a pistol like she don't mess around so i love that yeah she's great my mom is my rock she's my one of my my favorite souls like she she just supports me and i see the happiness within her to have her son back
0: i love that so much and that was like one of those things that for me with my family they weren't um like I was actually one of the few I feel like addicts who just like when I decided that I was gonna like really take a hard left I just like ran away so I didn't really like steal from my family I didn't like like necessarily like do anything directly to them but they still like cut me off for years and it took walking the walk and now like you know my mom just had her birthday this week and so um my when I say my mom I'm talking about my stepmom my biological mother died but um my was raised by my stepmom and my dad and that's my son's Gigi that's like he loves her more than anything I and mean, the relationship that I've been able to build with them is like so amazing now and I'm so grateful for it and I don't know that i <coughs> got there because I was a pretty shitty person and you know for the majority I think of my life not necessarily I didn't mean to be shitty but looking back on it it's like oh I was selfish as hell no wonder like they didn't like me very much I just was all about myself right um now with what you're doing now okay so explain like so you get sober you've been sober for 16 and a half years mm-hmm. tell me about like because I I mean you're a, you you're essentially okay I, and you're gonna like think I'm overinflating, inflating, but you're a YouTube sensation, you're a big TikToker, like people see your videos, you you do a lot for the community locally, but then also on a national level, I would say, because of like the platforms that you're enabled to do. But like what are you doing? um, just what are you doing? Explain what it's like to be an interventionist. Do people reach out to you? How does that process work? And then of course, you're always doing the social media.
1: So thanks. I, I actually, um, when I got sober, I was encouraged to go to school, um, to become a drug and alcohol counselor. So, you know, a lot of people, they get sober, especially out here in California they they often want to go back into the helping field and help others since they've been helped. So I went to college, something I really was opposed to doing, but one of my greatest mentors pushed me. So I went and learned drug and alcohol studies, pharmacology, group facilitation, case management, motivational interviewing, all this stuff. And I loved it. And I started working in treatment. I started working in an adolescent facility, working with youngsters. A lot of them reminded me of myself. They were like little mini peges. Um, (laughs) There were some power struggles, ups and downs, and... But you know, I, it was a learning experience, and then Department of Justice took me out of there because they said that a former meth seller, uh, meth addict and seller couldn't be working with adolescents. So I had to fight that case, and while I was fighting it, I started working in adult treatment. I beat the case with the Department of Justice, and I was given a probationary period to go back for two years and work in adolescent treatment. But at this point, I was already pretty deep into working in adult treatment, and so that's what I did for a while. I mean, I, I've i worked in treatment in some capacity over all these last years that I went through school. Finished top of my class, by the way, in drug and alcohol studies. Dean's list, 4.0 student. Never thought I would ever see that number attached to me, let alone make the dean's list. Uh, I love it. And, and in doing that, I mean, I realized, well, wait, when you're sober, like you can pay attention in class and like achieve and do well. <laughs> And so then there was plenty of people that came before me that um, they demonstrated that they were examples of that. They, they went back and they studied and they became psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, pharmacists, pharmacists, everything. Right. So like I said, you know, I'll take it. I'll I'll do this drug and alcohol counseling stuff for a while. But that took a lot out of me too. When you have a large caseload between running groups and make writing notes and things like that for the groups and and all of the individual notes for each client, I found myself kind of wearing myself down. I, you know, for a long time, I worked also in Trader Joe's as a get well job, just um, until I put myself through school. But once I was done with school um, and I was making more than Trader Joe's as a drug and alcohol counselor, I wanted to take it to the next level. In order for to live in Southern California comfortably, you need to make money. That's all there is to it. And no I realized like, I could be a drug and alcohol counselor, but I'll probably only be able to live paycheck to paycheck. Like I can only have the bare minimum in life. And I, there's a lot more to what I want to do with my life. I thought at the time, and that was when I was about seven years sober than what I was doing. So I said, why don't I take it to the next level? God always put things in my path, opened up new avenues, new opportunities, and it all came because it all came with just staying sober while I um, was going to school. And while I was doing all the case management and things like that, I got these opportunities to open some sober livings up in L.A. Um, they were highly structured. I got the opportunity to design them the way I wanted to. I did. I became partners with people that were not people I should have got been partners with. Handshake deals turned into uh, stabbing in the back. I... Backed away from that, and I became a recovery coach and a life coach. And I got trained for that by one of the best. Um, This guy, Mark Liddyard, he was just amazing. Um, And in that time, I also linked up with a guy named Earl Hightower. Now, Earl Hightower is known in the recovery community in many different capacities. In the 12-step world, he's known to be one of the best, if not, I mean, I'll, I'll be biased, but a lot of people would agree with me. One of the best speakers in in the 12-step world, whether it's CAAA. His stuff can be found on YouTube. His story is like no other. Uh, I took him on as an AA sponsor, but also professionally, he was already an interventionist that uh, provided recovery companion services, as in like um, he would send certain people out on assignments that would stay with people. Um, Sometimes they were high-end people. Sometimes they were celebrities. Sometimes they were... um, musicians, things like that, regardless of the fact, I started working with him. Uh, I did a lot of marketing for High Tower Associates. I didn't know what I was doing, but that man taught me the ins and outs. So I had these spiritual giants that were always placed in my path that taught me how to build myself spiritually in the recovery world, but also um, in, in the recovery space as, as far as working went
0: like finances, because obviously, build like, my brand,
1: fucking- yep, build my yeah. brand and make a name for myself. And so, um, so, you know, between him and what he did already, I, you know, the internet was totally taking off, I was able to start utilizing a lot of visual spaces where people could see me. And um, so I did recovery companion work, I became a private life coach and sober coach for um, some very high profile people in Beverly Hills and in Westwood and LA. And then I kept working with Earl and Earl took me under his wing and he taught me the ins and outs of everything when it comes to interventions, um, companion work, monitoring case management on a higher level with, with all types of people. He took me under his wing. I did his trainings. I went on to go do other people's trainings like Patty Pike and Ed Stoarty, um, can-Am, they, they, those, that organization taught me. I became a certified life coach, sober coach. Um, that was during the pandemic. And over the years, I've had many different clients that I work with and I got to develop my own brand. My brand is Pej Interventions. I've been uh, trained under the best. I am a professional when it comes to doing interventions. I have been supervised and trained and and I get a lot of work nationally and sometimes internationally also uh i was pushed by a social media team that i hired to go into the tiktok space now i thought that when i first heard tiktok i i fought them tooth and nail i'm like isn't that musically like renamed and um they laughed and they told me that um it's a whole different animal now and if you want to build your brand it might be the fastest way to build your brand is through tiktok Mm so
0: (laughs) now they knew what they were talking about right what's that i said it turned out that they knew what they were talking about they did i
1: got my name out there and in that time i also started i already had an instagram professional account but it wasn't really going anywhere it's hard to build yourself up on instagram unless it is unless you want to uh pay for play but then also there was um youtube and facebook um i was part of a podcast that started in 2017 for a couple of years while I worked for a treatment center called The Sober Grind alongside a normie uh, named Austin Armstrong. And he and I hosted this show and um, it was what I always had wanted to do, but you know it was short-lived. It was only a couple of years because neither of us worked at that treatment center after a while and that belonged to them. So then Austin went on to start a thing called so- Socialty Pro which was multimedia, interactive, multimedia, um, SEO type of work where they would edit, where they would put together things. They built up my TikTok. I will give them that credit. They were excellent in doing that. Um, And I decided during pandemic to start my own podcast called Peggy's Recovery Corner. Now, that um, took off quite well. It was just in a little office in a house since we were all confined where I would have my guests come and we would, I would interview them. And then I said, why not take it to the next level and build your own studio? Uh, so I built my I own studio. I love your studio, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. The studio that I built, I wanted to make it like a professional podcaster style. And that's what it's become. I manifested it um, around this time last year. I was like really wanting to get it back up and going again. Cause it had taken a little hiatus, a little break for a while. And once I did, then it just became, um, it's it's what it, it, between growing my YouTube, the growth I already had on TikTok, um, growing my Facebook, it's becoming something. I'm not saying it's a major podcast yet, but I do see it going in that direction. I, um,
0: It's interesting though, right? Like, because, so I've never, I never wanted to, like, I used to make fun of my husband. My husband actually would sit on his phone and look at TikToks. And I'm like, what are you doing? Aren't these like teenage kids? Like, what are you doing? That's retarded. And then I'll never forget the day I went into the hospital. It was was my anniversary. It was February 2nd of 2023. I'd been like messing around on TikTok. I'd made some about, you know, fentanyl and whatever. But I started like just like vlogging because I end up with like, my third open heart surgery which and I'm like crying and it's like totally all authentic and whatever and the thing just like takes off and for, and I probably built like the majority of like my following which is nothing compared to yours compared to yours just in a very short time frame based on my heart stuff now I will say I don't enjoy it as much as I do with podcasts because I love being able to talk and hear your story like for instance I had no idea about that big part of your story, that big part of your story that you just told me. Like, I don't think I've seen a video that in a 15 second clip on TikTok about your story like that, which is why I love podcasting. Right. I love it. I mean, I, but I also feel like I'm you at your seven year mark where I'm like, okay, dee 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 dee. like, I'm, I want to do this, but there's, hurdles i do agree with you god puts things in front of you that make sense and whatnot um so i'm just gonna keep on trusting um in him and that um but your studio is super cool where's it located
1: um it's located this studio is located in aliso viejo california um i am working on building another studio in los angeles too i want one in both areas because i want to be able to make one of the, it'll all be the same podcast, but, and who knows, maybe it will become two different ones, but I definitely want to make one of the pod, I want the podcast to display all different types of people. And when I say that, like, I do want to get, um, major guests. And I think that LA would be a better setting for that. You know, I want to get people like, um, hopefully one day jelly roll, um, maybe Uh,
0: that would be so cool.
1: Gabor Mate, um, you know, lots of different, guests that can speak on addiction people that have had past addictions people that you know celebrities like i i do have the ability to get some major people on i just don't think that i can get them to drive down to orange
0: county it's yeah. so funny because people don't realize so it's you guys it's not that it's not that far of a drive okay but like mileage wise but it takes like hours Because of the traffic. (laughs) It
1: does. It does. And I think if it's if it's just based in LA, it's a lot easier for the guests just to come like right to the studio and we do it like that, you know, as opposed to drive that far to go be on someone's podcast.
0: And it's so interesting because Orange County people think of like Orange, like what I actually think of Orange County as being like more I don't know, more like prestigious, I guess, than LA. But you're right in terms of a lot of the people that are in that scene that, you know, they're more closely related to the metropolitan, like, Los Angeles area, for sure, so... yep, I do agree with that. Um, now, my, like, I guess, from the standpoint of with your interventions, whenever you're dealing with a family member, because this is something that's always been hard for me to grapple with, I have... My personal belief is that is that as much as you want your family member that's suffering to get better, there is not a treatment center in the world or a lockdown facility or a you know road to the boonies that's going to do that, um, you can pay as much as you want unless that person wants to, right? That's just my thought. You can make them more uncomfortable along the way, which might push them <coughs> a little bit faster. But, what do you how do you approach these families when they're like hey little johnny is or hey big johnny whatever you know just relapse like how do you what is your thought on that
1: i think everything is based on case by case you know i get different phone calls from different people um so they will depending on the case i need to talk to the right people to get the scenario of who's doing what, what's going on with them, where are they located, if they're homeless, if they're within a home, if they're, um, you know, as I gather information, because that's usually how an intervention goes, you must gather the information so that you know how to approach the situation. Nobody wants to get sober in an intervention. There may be a small portion of people that get intervened on that really couldn't wait for this day right but the majority of the people you know depending on what modality of intervention you use too like let's say if, if it's a johnson model that's the traditional letter writing and getting everybody they feel like they're ambushed like where'd you guys all come from why'd you like you're all you guys have been talking about me
0: super defensive like <coughs> yeah like they're like just very in total defense
1: <coughs> exactly now there are some people that You know, when it's an invitational model that you use, you're basically, you've told them in advance, we're meeting with a professional and we would like for you to come too. So you're inviting them in, letting them know, listen, we're worried about you. We think you're not well. We're meeting with someone that's going to help educate us and help us with this. We would like for you to come too. Maybe you'll get something out of it, like uh, learn how to change your life because we don't agree with it. Something along those lines. So it's. There's a lot of people in the 12 step world that say you can't force recovery on anybody. No, you can't. And there's a lot of people in the treatment world, including myself that say treatment doesn't keep people sober. It does not. Right. As my great mentor Earl often says, the point of treatment is to break the resistance for long-term recovery. It's like triage. Like you base, it's just there to, to stop the bleeding. However, after 60 days, a person's brain goes in different directions. And if they don't have some kind of good treatment plan set in place as an aftercare plan, most likely, if they go back to the respective homes or wherever they were using before, whatever they were doing before, or whoever they were hanging out with before, they're going to get loaded again. So when it comes to doing what I do, first, I need to get the family on board, I gather the information, and then I need to convince them that they need to change their tune and what they've been doing in order for us to try to hopefully help their loved one.
0: Right. Which is like, so that kind of sounds more like, that kind of sounds like how I was essentially like sent to treatment. My husband's family found out that I was pregnant and we were approached. I really was, I think I would be one of those people that, if you would have at that exact moment in time, like, threw me on a couch and been like, Hey, you have to go. I I was kind of waiting for that moment because I was like really tired, but it did. My husband was not quite there, but it came as like an invitation almost as, Hey, we're going to give you this one last opportunity, you know, to go this route. If you don't choose this, then we will, you know, we'll go this way with our relationship, which is essentially going to be nothing. But if you do, you're going to find support on the other side. And so we went that way, right? And it, and I'm so blessed that we did. But that sounds kind of more like what you're talking about.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then you know, then it, the art of intervention is when you're in that room with that person, based off of what's all going down, getting that person to understand that their life really hasn't been working also making the family, make it clear to them that something's got to change because they're not going to do it here anymore. And then after that, um, making, building enough rapport with the person to agree to go with you to, um, to treatment, you know, to, to actually get the help that they need to go get out of that equation or that lifestyle or wherever they're living. And, um, make a difference in their life and and then after that comes a lot of other things one is like placing the person in the proper um place and then going and um you know working with them to to not just go through the treatment process but also uh afterwards placement afterwards
0: example People, places, and things. I was just going to – I mean, you. I agree with that. It's so basic, but it's like I stayed in California for two years because the only thing I knew was sobriety there. There was no triggers, no bad people. It was only like positivity. Right. right.
1: Well, that, that's the thing, though. After 60 to 90 days of treatment, where are you going next? You're not going back to your parents' house. So let's find you a good, structured, sober living and put you there and then stay there for a while. How long? Doesn't matter. Six months, one year. Go through the process of the steps. Nothing else has worked for you before. I've done the steps. No, you haven't done the steps. If you did the steps, you wouldn't be using and drinking. You wouldn't have relapsed. But it's all about building rapport and then helping that person redevelop their life, gain some life skills, get some recovery under their belt so that they can go back and become self-supporting by their own contributions and live a life.
0: I love that. And I love that you have... Not just the intervention means, but you also like have the ability because of your sober living homes to kind of offer these people next steps, which is really cool. And something that is very, I agree, very necessary. Like you have to have a plan. It's not just like, oh, cool. I'm going to send my kid to treatment for 60 days and they're just going to be cured. It's like, no, 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 no. Back up. We need a plan, like a long plan of longevity this is not that's not how that works right i mean I, I don't know if you agree with this but people often say it takes two years at least for your brain to kind of like redevelop and i did feel like that at least in my case even though i didn't necessarily do like hard hard drugs for mm, like i would say like opiates four years ish roughly um but it took my brain i there was also at the end meth and ghb scattered in there I felt like my mind did not compute with my mouth for like two years. I felt like I couldn't get out. I knew I was smarter than what was coming out of my mouth. And I I don't know if it was anxiety or what it was, but it really did take that time. And then the confidence of like being able to, you know, just live again. So, I mean, I think what you've done is amazing. And I'm like, you did kind of throw me off by telling me that story because I did not Know that,
1: right? I mean, there's a lot I I didn't, I didn't know you didn't know.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I've never like because if you think about it, like I'm the baby compared to you know you and Dana. I mean, you I don't know. I guess like I was you know I am coming up on four years soon. Like in like the next, it depends on how you want to judge my sober time. But either like I guess the day that I got thrown in the hospital or. February, March, whatever. Okay, so I'm coming up What do you mean, Judge, or what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is, like, I can, I mean, for me, when I went to the hospital the second time, I was put on, like, tons of pain meds, including even things, like, they let me leave on methadone and Suboxone, and, like, just they had me on so much stuff. But I was under their supervision and essentially went pretty much straight from there to rehab. But a lot of people, I mean, don't, con- you know, I was on a ton of pain meds. I know my chest cracked open. So I guess, like, for me, I've always kind of counted the moment that I walked into treatment and was on nothing. Um, but I don't know. People have different ideas, right? Like, is being on a mountain. I mean, I don't know. To me, I was in the hospital doing what the doctors said from the moment I found out I was essentially like, pregnant. And a lot of people don't think that beyond math meds mean that you're sober i i don't personally agree that they're not sober um on that but it's just there's a wide variety of views on that particular subject as you know
1: <laughs> yeah so
0: yeah so i mean but regardless i mean i'm coming up on four years like very very soon so i've always been the baby, and i feel like you like, you've interviewed me and talked to me a lot more than i've ever been able to Talk to you and you've been someone I've been able to learn from as well as Dana so um, I know how selfless you are I know how much you've done for local community like state community in California is I will give it to them the place like in terms of recovery there's so many resources there come out to where I live and it is a different it's a whole different ball game like yes people need it but no one wants to talk about it right right so I think that's where social media and doing you know this kind of stuff I really believe that that helps so um did I leave anything out that you like want to get in in terms of no I know you're I know you're a busy body and you probably have like 10 things lined up in the next like
1: <laughs> no I, just, I, I, hear... I gave you my full attention
0: okay no I believe you okay <laughs> I believe you. I appreciate and I appreciate it. You're amazing, and I know Thank that.
1: You. I appreciate your kindness.
0: No, Pej,
1: please.
0: I'm excited to come see you and Dana soon. I miss my. You know, y- the grass isn't always greener, right? I thought I was coming to Texas to. I don't know what I thought. I'm just like even more in the boonies than I thought I was out there. I thought I was gonna be like close to my family. I'm still like an hour and a half. It's just crazy, but. um Yeah, I know. I can't wait to get out there and see you guys and hopefully continue to learn more from you and kind of watch you on your podcast journey because the YouTube aspect and the video aspect is so good. And I want you to make sure that you send me all of your info for your... If you come out here,
1: I want you on the podcast
0: in person. I would love to be. I would love nothing more than that. And I am going to, I, I am coming out there. I just don't know when, <laughs> but I am coming. Um, I'm definitely coming. So yeah, I would love to be on. And I w- just, you guys, Pej is such an amazing example. Uh, he, I'm going to put all of the info that he has from sober livings to his YouTube channel, to his TikTok handle, to everything in the description of this podcast And hopefully you guys gained a little bit more from his story because I know him and I know that I learned more about him in the last 45 minutes than I have previously. So thank you for sharing.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. And we will talk soon and hopefully I get to see you soon. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode number 17 with your host Jessica Danielle and the one and only Pej the interventionist. You can find all of the details for Pej in the description of this podcast and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I learned a few things for sure. Pej is awesome and definitely check out his YouTube channel. You guys check out his TikTok. He is incredible. And I'm so appreciative that he was willing to come on. So thank you guys so much. And this was Jessica Danielle, your host signing out of episode 17 of Fixed.